instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring out some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they may serve before the king. Now from among of the house, uh, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you, would be in danger, then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, as you see fit. So deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they, which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were, with, who were all in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of the king Cyrus. morning. Right, um, we, we finished Malachi, and um, last time I spoke just a, a one-off uh, sermon, which is uh, on, on Romans, and, um, and I, I said I was, we were praying about what to start next, and I thought uh, we would start the book of Daniel uh, because uh, when I think at least a handful of people came and told me, why don't we stick with the Old Testament? Um, so uh, it's important, yes, even last time George and spoke, he mentioned that uh, once we understand the Old Testament, we understand 
a lot of attributes of God. That is true. And not just the attributes of God. We also understand the plan and the program of God for the ages, especially in the book of Daniel. And uh, the book of Daniel is uh, apocalyptic, part of it. It is, it is prophetic, but it beautifully blends prophecy with piety. And so the call that the prophet has for us is remain faithful to the Lord. No matter what happens around us, no matter what kingdoms may rise and fall, no matter who's the president and who's not, remain faithful to the Lord. Because there is a program that God has chalked out and uh, he will be and his kingdom will be the victor at the end of it all. And so we will go through the book of Daniel. It's, it's a very tough book. Uh, I think it's a preacher's nightmare because it's very hard to outline that book. But uh, it is the word of God. We need to look at it. And so I thought uh, we should look at the book of Daniel and, and understand what the book of Daniel has to tell us about God's program for the ages. And so as we uh, go through the chapters, especially from chapter 2, chapter 1 is just an introduction about Daniel and his setting and uh, how he was and his friends, three friends. We know it's a Sunday school story. But as we move on into chapter 2 and all, we go to Nebuchadnezzar's visions, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and Daniel's visions and all of that. And we see the animals and the representations that they were, uh, they were given. And so uh, we may have some charts and we may have some... Uh, uh, presentations, but uh, kindly uh, listen to this very carefully because this is God's word and this is God's program for the ages, no matter what other people say about what uh, the future holds for all of us. So today we will, as it was evident to us and uh, read out to us, we will look at chapter 1. But before that, uh, I was just thinking about this incident that happened in Hyderabad, I think a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this has been doing the rounds on WhatsApp. It was about a man by the name of K.S. Swami, 47 years old, and he was distributing Bibles uh, near some tank bund area or somewhere in Hyderabad, and uh, he was accosted by uh, a group of uh, fanatics, and uh, he was used abusive language at, and he was threatened with very violent threats, and uh, he was accused of false conversions and all such things, and he was put in the police station for about a day. And after he came out of the station, police station, he was released from there, uh, he found himself dizzy and uh, he couldn't think coherently. And so he had to be taken to the hospital and there was internal bleeding in his brain and all of that. And, uh, and so he is now still at the hospital is what we hear. And a neurosurgeon in Kamenini hospitals in Hyderabad said he needs some kind of a brain surgery. In fact, if you look at the list of countries that is given by Open Doors in the year 2017, a list that talks about where it is most difficult to be a Christian or to live, to live as a Christian, India ranks at 15. It ranked 24 a couple of years ago, but it, it has moved up to 15. It is difficult to live as a Christian in India because of persecution. So the question is, how can we live as Christians in a context where your rights are taken away from you, where the society is against you? And the, the answer is, in a very simple way, the only way you can live 
in a society like this that is against you and in a context where your rights are being taken away unlawfully is by remaining faithful to the Lord. Is by remaining faithful to the Lord. Now, faithfulness is a very important concept in the Bible. In fact, the word in the New Testament, the word faithful or faithfulness, occurs 49 times in the NASB translation and 47 times in the NIV. In fact, in the Old Testament, the same words, faith and faithfulness, they occur 95 times in the NIV translation and about 86 times in the NASB translation, which means that the word faithfulness or the word faith or remaining faithful to the Lord is a very loudly proclaimed concept in the Bible. It is a concept that is essential to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this raises a couple of important questions. Firstly, how can we remain faithful even when things are tough and things are against us? Or better, how does a Christian live a faithful life under God's sovereignty? How does a Christian live a faithful life under God's sovereignty? And the book of Daniel's, Daniel answers all these questions for us, thankfully, about how God's sovereignty and our faithfulness come together, or rather how we can be faithful, understanding the sovereignty of God. So today's passage will reveal to us two ways in which God's sovereignty and our faithfulness are connected. God's sovereignty and our faithfulness are connected. So we'll, we'll have the outline up here of chapter 1, and uh, if Abhijit can help us to have the outline of chapter 1. Uh, we will go through it phrase by phrase. It's, it's a big chapter, 21 verses. It's not like the New Testament where you can preach on five verses, where you have three points for five verses. But this is a descriptive passage. This is a narrative. So you'll have to go through big chunks of it. So bear with us. But it is a very, very simple sermon, but and yet a very profound one about how to remain faithful to the Lord, understanding the sovereignty of God. So in verses 1 through 7, you'll see that the Lord is sovereign and he always reigns despite all appearances to the contrary. The Lord is sovereign and he always reigns despite all appearances to the contrary. The Lord is never weak, weak or inactive, but his sovereign good pleasure determines all outcomes. He's never weak or he's never inactive. He never fails, but his sovereign good pleasure determines all outcomes. And that is exactly what happened in the case of Judah. What happened in Judah? Nebuchadnezzar the Great, the king of Babylon, took Judah into exile, but he served, in doing so, he served as God's instrument for judgment. And Nebuchadnezzar put Jerusalem and Judah to the sword, and he shamed them, and he did it in two ways. The first thing, and Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and carried off, carried off the plunder to Babylon. Look at verses 1 and 2, please. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, small g there, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's go back to a bit of history and put the entire thing in the historical context. Otherwise, we can't understand the book of Daniel or for that matter, any book in the Bible 
if we don't put it back into its historical context. There were two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. Solomon reigned and after he died, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. God sent prophets to both the kingdoms. They were idolaters, both of them. In fact, Israel had certain kings. They had 19 kings and five different dynasties and one queen. The southern kingdom of Judah also had 19 kings. All of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were evil. But the southern kingdom of Israel enjoyed certain periods of time, like kings like Josiah and all of them, where they had good periods of godliness, where people were brought back to the Lord. The word of God was given. And Josiah is looking at me and smiling. <laughs> and I'm talking about King Josiah. So these two kingdoms were there. God sent different prophets warning them to come back to the Lord. And the Assyrians came to the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed them, and took them into exile in 722 BC. And as Judah was going into idolatry as well, God sent prophets to Judah saying exactly the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom of Israel will happen to you if you don't repent. And several people, several prophets came and warned them. But in about 605 BC, it was Nebuchadnezzar the Great, who was the king of Babylon, who came and made the first hit against Jerusalem, against Judah. And it took him about 20 years to completely capture Judah. And in about 586 BC, all of the people from Judah were taken into captivity in Babylon. So by 586 BC, all of the people were in Exile, And so here the book opens with a divine judgment that happened on Jerusalem and Judah. It opens with a synopsis of the first Jewish deportation that happened in 605 BC. And in that first deportation, there, were, there was Daniel and there were his three friends who were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon uh, as, as exiles. And as it happened, we don't know not anything about the background of Daniel, all we know is he may have been from a royal background because that's what the Bible says here. And we know nothing about where his family lived as well. But we can speculate and fairly speculate well and say that his parents may have been killed by the Babylonians because the Bible doesn't talk about his parents as well. But Daniel wrote that it was the Lord in one sense who was responsible for this deportation, this exile Look at verse 2. He says, it is the Lord who gave Nebuchadnezzar the great success by giving Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of this Babylonian king. He viewed God as sovereignly controlling the past affairs of his chosen people. And so the Israelites were not mere pawns. They were not mere pawns on a political and geographical chessboard. But to be in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Israel, sorry, king of Babylon, was not to be out of the control of God. God was still in control. And as the book unfolds, we will appreciate God's sovereignty more and more. As I said, we will see God's program for the ages and what God is going to do in the future as well. Now, da Daniel here particularly uses the name Shinar for Babylon. Shinar is a biblical name for Babylon that often connotes a place that is against God. That is the height of paganism. That is a seat of everything that is unholy. 
and carrying off vessels from Jerusalem temple to Babylon signified that this Near Eastern king, this Babylonian king, did not just uh, have victory over the people of God, but he also in one sense had victory against the very God of Jerusalem. And so Daniel begins his book by reminding his readers that it's not just the king, Jehoiakim, who was humiliated. In one sense, Yahweh was humiliated as well. And so there were three deportations that happened to the children of Israel going to Babylon. The first thing is the deportation of Daniel, his three friends, and the other Judeans, which happened in 605 B.C. And most people believe that Daniel was about 15 years old when this thing happened. Then there was a second deportation that happened in 597 B.C. during the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And at this time, Ezekiel also was taken into captivity. And then came the third deportation, which, is, was, which was in 586 B.C. And that's when the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And Israel or Judah became part of the Babylonian province. So these were the three hits that happened over a 20-year period. And Nebuchadnezzar utterly destroyed Jerusalem by 586 B.C., made it a province of Babylonia. And Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and carried off the plunder to Babylon. So that's what happened, and that's how he shamed it. Then there's a second way that he shamed it, too. Nebuchadnezzar tried to reprogram some Jews to change their identity. Look at verses 3 to 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Daniel's, uh, Daniel was taken to Babylon with his three friends, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was expanding rapidly. So he needed men of great ability and great skill and great intellectual prowess to handle different responsibilities in various parts of his kingdom. And therefore, with his brilliant mind, he instituted a plan. And the plan was to identify the most gifted, most handsome, most scholarly men who, from among the Hebrew captives who were available there and prepare them for positions of responsibility. And so Daniel and his three Hebrew peers were the cream of the crop in Judah, and so they were selected. And who was, who was about them to command over them and was placed in charge of them was this man by the name of Ashpenaz, who was heading the training project. And he was to select the finest and the most qualified men. And so what ensues here is that there are three things that the king tries to impose on these four men, Daniel and his three friends. The first thing that the king wanted to do was change his beliefs. The first thing that the king wanted to do was change his beliefs. And so we see that he wanted them to study their literature. 
he wanted them to study their language. That is the easiest way to change anyone's worldview or anyone's belief system, to make somebody study the literature and study a language. He wanted to change their convictions and their values. And so he attempted to put Chaldean language and literature into their minds and heads. So that's the first thing that he did. Then there's a second thing that the king of Babylon wanted to do. He wanted to change their lifestyles as well. So what did he do? He asked them, he gave them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the choice wine which he drank. And the lifestyle would change by exposing them to the Chaldean food and Chaldean wine and drink as well. So that's the second thing that the king of Babylon did. Then there's a third thing that he did. He didn't just want to change their belief system. He didn't want just to change their lifestyle. He also wanted to change their identity as well. He gave them different names. Daniel meant God is my judge. So all the names of these three friends along with Daniel were some, in some way associated with the God of the Bible, Yahweh or El, which is a short from Elohim. But their names are now taken and given completely different names which are associated with these pagan deities of Babylon. And so these names are taken away and they are given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Nebuchadnezzar tried to reprogram these people and some Jews to change their entire identity. Now here is the point. How easy would it have been to Daniel, for Daniel to sit there and become bitter toward Babylon? How easy would it have been for Daniel to sit there and become bitter towards his own people? Because it's the sin of his people that brought them to captivity. How easy would it have been for Daniel to become bitter towards his God because he knows that it is God who delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But he doesn't do any of that. In the captivity, in Babylon, he remains faithful to God. He remains faithful to God. You and I must remain faithful to God even when he seems like he is not in control. You and I must remain faithful to God even when he seems like he is not in control. God was still at work even in the lives of people, even in the captivity, even in the days of Judah's judgment and punishment. God was working in the lives of the disobedient to bring them to repentance. God was working in the lives of Daniel and his friends to bless them and to prosper them in their faithfulness. Now, just to understand that God is completely sovereign and to set the stage for the rest of the book, Daniel uses three statements about God's sovereignty. Look at verse 2 about what he says. He says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. It is the Lord who's controlling destiny. Second thing, in verse 9, Daniel says, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. It is God who's granting favor and acting on behalf of his people. And thirdly, in verse 17, he says, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. It is God who is sovereignly working out plans and purposes for his people. You and I must remain faithful, even when it seems like God is not completely in control. God in his love always wills what is best for us. God in his love always wills what is best for us. About four years ago, in fact, exactly four years ago, 2013, early part of it, I fell sick. And I had to be in bed at rest, uh, on, on rest for about one year. 
And as I was going through my physical pain and trouble and medication and all of that, one of the things that kept coming to my mind was this. God can be trusted and God is always in control and God will never do things to harm me. He will never do things to harm you and me because in his love, he always wills what is best for us. And in his wisdom, he knows what is best. In his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about as well. That is true for large-scale things that have happened like tsunami or 2611 in India and that is true for small-scale things that happen personally and individually. God is completely in control. We have to look to God and say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't know what's happening, but I trust you because it is happening in your will and you are completely sovereign over everything. Let me, let me just give you an illustration about uh, one of our martyrs of early church history. I love church history, and I was going through this uh, some time ago, and this is about a man by the name of Polycarp of Smyrna. He was a bishop of Smyrna, and uh, in the year 156 AD, he was an 86-year-old man. And he was called once by the Roman official and asked to denounce Christianity and denounce Christ. Otherwise, the option given to him was either to be thrown to an animal or to be burned on the pyre. And uh, Polycarp was a great man of God. He was a great witness of Jesus Christ in the second century. And he made this statement that really touched me. He said, 86 years have I served him. And he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years have I served him and he's done me He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp was not spared. He became an early martyr. But what rings through history still is a statement. 86 years uh, I've served him and he's done me no harm. How can I deny my Lord or my king who saved me? The point is you and I must remain faithful even when it seems like God is not in control. So in verses 1 through 7, we saw that the Lord is sovereign and he always reigns despite all appearances to the contrary. Then there's a second thing that Daniel is saying about how to understand God's sovereignty and the connectedness of God's sovereignty to our faithfulness. And that is in verses 8 through 21. They say that the Lord intervenes on behalf of his people when they take a stand for righteousness. The Lord intervenes on behalf of his people when they take a stand for righteousness. The Lord blesses you and honors you when you follow his will, even when it's tough. We see that evident in the life of Daniel. What did Daniel do? Daniel resolved not to be assimilated into Babylonian culture, and the Lord interfered on his behalf. And we see the development in two stages, and we'll keep that very brief and quick. Firstly, Daniel offered resistance and did not want to defile himself. Verses 8 through 14. Look at the text, please. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the, the, than the other youths who are of your own age. So 
you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Now, like we said, uh, there are three things that the king wanted to change. The first thing that he wanted to change was their belief system. He wanted to train them in Babylonian language and culture. The second thing he wanted to change was change their identity by changing their names. The third thing he wanted to change was change their value system or, or get them assimilated into the culture of Babylon by making them eat the food and drink from the, wine scu- uh, the king's cup as well. But you see, it is, it is very, very interesting. Daniel and his friends did not resist to the first thing. They did not resist about getting a Babylonian education. They did not resist about getting Babylonian names. But when it came to eating Babylonian food or getting, eating the king's food and drinking his wine, they resisted. Daniel offered resistance and he resolved not to defile himself is what the Bible says. Why is it that the first two things were not offered resistance to, but only the third thing they resisted? There is nothing wrong with education. As long as you are strong and sound in the word of God, even worldly education can be filtered through the sieve of God's word. In fact, that's exactly what happened to all of us, isn't it? All of us did not do only godly spiritual studies. We all did secular studies. In fact, I remember in my school, I was taught evolution at the age of about 10. But I was taught in my home and in my Sunday school, in my church, to to pass it through the sieve of God's word and only take what God's word says. Anything that goes against God's word, reject it. And so so in Babylon, Daniel and his friends did not have a problem with the education. The second thing was their identity that was going to be changed because of their names. He could change the names on the external but he could not change the hearts of these individuals. And so names didn't matter much. But there was something with the food and the wine from the king's table. Now, some commentators say that it is ceremonial defilement, but I don't think so. That is, that's, that's not what's happening here. What is happening here is in the ancient Near East, food and drinks was a time of celebration where there was, where there was a lot of value exchange and cultural exchange. There was assimilation into the culture. There was lifestyle changes that were happening during that time when they would have food and wine together. And so what Daniel resolved was that he would not eat at the king's table. He would not drink wine because he did not want to assimilate himself into the Babylonian culture or have their kind of a lifestyle. And so Daniel resolved not to eat from that. He goes to the steward and he, and he has a proposal. He says, for 10 days, test us. Give us only the produce of ground, vegetables or some pulses, and test us after 10 days. If you don't find us better than all the other people, then we can talk again. And the Bible says the Lord had mercy on him. The Lord had favor on him, and the steward agrees to it. And here goes Daniel. After 10 days, they were all compared. And Daniel and his friends were more healthier, is what the Bible says, than all the rest of the people who ate meat and ate 
from the king's table and drank wine as well. Now, this is not a case against non-vegetarianism. Uh, please don't take it that way. But the, prop, the, the point is not about eating vegetables. The point is about being in the will of God and doing what God wants us to do. Daniel offered resistance and did not want to defile himself. Then there's a second thing that happened. The Lord honored Daniel by giving him great knowledge and success as well. Verses 15 through 21. At the end of 10 days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who, had the, who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine uh, uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now we know that Daniel established a good relationship with the steward. He had, he had favor in his eyes, and so Daniel has victory here given by God. But not just that, in addition to the favors that he granted with the overseers, Daniel and his friends were also granted by God special prowess in knowledge and understanding. And when they, when they were given government responsibilities later on, they fared much better than all the other officials from different nations. And so God blessed them even in that, and God gave them success and exalted them. And we see in the last verse that Daniel's ministry as a government official spanned for about 65 years until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. It spanned for about 65 years. The Lord honored Daniel by giving him great knowledge. One of the very important things that we need to do in our lives as Christians is that we must make sure that our lifestyles show that we are Christians. We must make sure that our lifestyles show very clearly to the world that we are Christians. What is a Christian lifestyle? What is a Christian lifestyle? A Christian lifestyle is one in which the character of Christ is seen through our lives and the way we live and the way we make our decisions. When we talk, when we behave with others, when we make our decisions, people should be able to see Christ Jesus in and through our lives. And that is what a Christian lifestyle is. Now, we come into contact with various things and circumstances just like an unbeliever. But the way we react to the circumstances, the way we make decisions in those circumstances is what stands us out and sets us apart as a Christian. For example, there are several things in this world that we come into contact with just like an unbeliever. But we view them through the lenses of Christ. The environment is not just for saving like a worldly person does. But it is for managing and witnessing to God's creative power. It is for enjoyment for all of us as believers in Christ. Money and power are not for holding, hoarding or for self-interest, but for giving out freely for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Conflicts are not resolved through power or selfishness, but they are resolved through forgiveness and prayer. Stress and worry 
are replaced in the believer's life with concern and focused prayer. Poverty and illness are not simply a curse to be avoided. But they are places that God takes us sometimes to teach us some life's finest lessons. Trials and obstacles are not simply to be overcome. But we must understand them as God's way of testing us and increasing us in our faith. Failure and sinfulness are not causes for criticism and shame. But opportunities to know God's love and forgiveness. And finally, death is not to be feared and avoided at all costs. But death is something that we look forward to as well because that is what opens door for us to be with Jesus forever. And so these are some attitudes and approaches to life that we experience as Christians. And these attitudes, these goals, these motivations, and this kind of a daily lifestyle that is different from the worldly person will tell the world that we really are Christians and we have a higher lifestyle. You must make sure your lifestyle shows you're a Christian. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole chapter basically says, the Lord is sovereign and he honors his people when they live a life of trust. The Lord is sovereign and he honors his people when they live a life of trust. We must be faithful to God in the way we live, even when life circumstances are tough. So two things we saw, the Lord is sovereign and he always reigns despite all appearances to the contrary. And second thing, the Lord intervenes on behalf of his people when they take a stand in righteousness. Thank you for your patience and uh, let's close in prayer. Father God, we want to thank you for your word this morning from the life of Daniel. How he, took his, how he took his stands for you in righteousness, O Lord. We want to thank you, O Lord, that you are a sovereign God and thank you for the reminder that you act and intervene on behalf of your people when they live and act in righteousness. Father, I pray, O Lord, that uh, we would always take a stand for righteousness and we would live the lifestyle of a Christian, a lifestyle that exhibits Christ to the world, where people can really tell that this is a Christian who's living. I want to thank you, O Lord, for the rest of the things that are going to come up, our sisters' meeting and our fellowship, and I pray, O Lord, that your name would be exalted in everything. In Jesus' name.